Section 3 of Zigzags of Treachery and Other Stories by Dashiell Hammett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Girl with the Silver Eyes, Part 1. 1. A bell jangled me into wakefulness. I rolled to the edge of my bed and reached for the telephone. The neat voice of the old man, the Continental Detective Agency's San Francisco manager, came to my ears. Sorry to disturb you, but you'll have to go up to the Glinton Apartments on Leavenworth Street. A man named Burke Pangburn, who lives there, phoned me a few minutes ago, asking to have someone sent up to see him at once. He seemed rather excited. Will you take care of it? See what he wants. I said I would and yawning, stretching, and cursing Pangburn, whoever he was, got my fat body out of pajamas and into street clothes. The man who had disturbed my Sunday morning sleep, I found when I reached the Glenton, was a slim, white-faced person of about twenty-five, with big brown eyes that were red-rimmed just now from either sleeplessness or crying, or both. His long brown hair was rumpled when he opened the door to admit me, and he wore a mauve dressing robe spotted with big jade parrots over wine-colored silk pajamas. The room to which he led me resembled an auctioneer's establishment just before the sale, or maybe one of those alley tea rooms. Fat blue vases, crooked red vases, lanky yellow vases, vases of various shapes and colors, marble statuettes, ebony statuettes, statuettes of any material, Lanterns, lamps, and candlesticks, draperies, hangings, and rugs of all sorts, odds and ends of furniture that were all somehow queerly designed. Peculiar pictures hung here and there in unexpected places. A hard room to feel comfortable in. My fiance, he began immediately in a high-pitched voice that was within a notch of hysteria, has disappeared. Something has happened to her. Foul play of some horrible sort. I want you to find her, to save her from this terrible thing that... I followed him this far and gave it up. A jumble of words came out of his mouth. Spirited away, mysterious something, lured into a trap. But they were too disconnected for me to make anything out of them. So I stopped trying to understand him and waited for him to babble himself empty of words. I have heard ordinarily reasonable men under stress of excitement run on even more crazily than this wild-eyed youth, but his dress, the parroted robe and gay pajamas, and his surroundings, this deliriously furnished room, gave him too theatrical a setting, made his words sound utterly unreal. He himself, when normal, should have been a rather nice-looking lad. His features were well-spaced, and though his mouth and chin were a little uncertain, his broad forehead was good. But standing there listening to the occasional melodramatic phrase that I could pick out of the jumbled noises he was throwing at me, I thought that instead of parrots on his robe, he should have had cuckoos. Presently he ran out of language and was holding his long, thin hands out to me in an appealing gesture, saying, Will you? over and over. Will you? Will you? I nodded soothingly and noticed that tears were on his thin cheeks. Suppose we begin at the beginning, I suggested, sitting down carefully on a carved bench of fairy that didn't look any too strong. Yes, yes, he was standing legs apart in front of me, running his fingers through his hair. The beginning. I had a letter from her every day until... That's not the beginning, I objected. Who is she? What is she? 
She's Jeanie Delano, he exclaimed in surprise at my ignorance. And she is my fiancée, and now she is gone, and I know that the phrases victim of foul play, into a trap, and so on, began to flow hysterically out again. Finally, I got him quieted down, and sandwiched in between occasional emotional outbursts, got a story out of him that amounted to this. This Burke Pangburn was a poet. About two months before, he had received a note from a genie Delano, forwarded from his publishers, praising his latest book of rhymes. Jeanie Delano happened to live in San Francisco, too, though she hadn't known that he did. He had answered her note and had received another. After a little of this, they met. If she really was as beautiful as he claimed, then he wasn't to be blamed for falling in love with her. But whether or not she was really beautiful, he thought she was, and he had fallen hard. This Delano girl had been living in San Francisco for only a little while, and when the poet met her, she was living alone in an Ashbury Avenue apartment. He did not know where she came from or anything about her former life. He suspected from certain indefinite suggestions and peculiarities of conduct, which he couldn't put into words, that there was a cloud of some sort hanging over the girl, that neither her past nor her present were free from difficulties. But he hadn't the least idea what those difficulties might be. He hadn't cared. He knew absolutely nothing about her, except that she was beautiful, and he loved her, and she had promised to marry him. Then, on the third of the month, exactly twenty-one days before this Sunday morning, the girl had suddenly left San Francisco. He had received a note from her by messenger. This note, which he showed me after I had insisted point-blank on seeing it, read, Burke, love, have just received a wire and must go east on next train. Tried to get you on the phone, but couldn't. Will write you as soon as I know what my address will be, if anything. These two words were erased and could be read only with great difficulty. Love me until I'm back with you forever. Your genie. Nine days later he had received another letter from her from Baltimore, Maryland. This one, which I had a still harder time getting to look at, read, Dearest poet, it seems like two years since I have seen you, and I have a fear that it's going to be between one and two months before I see you again. I can't tell you now, beloved, about what brought me here. There are things that can't be written. But as soon as I'm back with you, I shall tell you the whole wretched story. If anything should happen, I mean to me, you'll go on loving me forever, won't you, beloved? But that's foolish. Nothing is going to happen. I'm just off the train and tired from traveling. Tomorrow I shall write you a long, long letter to make up for this. My address here is 215 North Stricker Street. Please, mister, at least one letter a day. Your own, Cheney. For nine days he had had a letter from her each day, with two on Monday to make up for the none on Sunday. And then her letters had stopped. And the daily letters he had sent to the address she gave, 215 North Stricker Street, had begun to come back to him, marked Not Known. He had sent a telegram, and the telegraph company had informed him that its Baltimore office had been unable to find a genie Delano at the North Stricker Street address. For three days he had waited, expecting hourly to hear from the girl, and no word had come. Then he had bought a ticket for Baltimore. But, 
he wound up. I was afraid to go. I know she's in some sort of trouble. I can feel that. But I'm a silly poet. I can't deal with mysteries. Either I would find nothing at all, or if by luck I did stumble on the right track, the probabilities are that I would only muddle things, add fresh complications, perhaps endanger her life still further. I can't go blundering at it in that fashion without knowing whether I'm helping or harming her. It's a task for an expert in that sort of thing. So I thought of your agency. You'll be careful, won't you? It may be I don't know that she won't want assistance. It may be that you can help her without her knowing anything about it. You are accustomed to that sort of thing. You can do it, can't you? 2. I turned the job over and over in my mind before answering him. The two great bugaboos of a reputable detective agency are the persons who bring in a crooked plan or a piece of divorce work, all dressed up in the garb of a legitimate operation, and the irresponsible person who is laboring under wild and fanciful delusions, who wants a dream run out. This poet, sitting opposite me now, twining his long white fingers nervously together, was, I thought, sincere, but I wasn't so sure of his sanity. Mr. Pangburn, I said after a while, I'd like to handle this thing for you, but I'm not sure that I can. The Continental is rather strict. And while I believe this thing is on the level, still I'm only a hired man and have to go by the rules. Now, if you could give us the endorsement of some firm or person of standing, a reputable lawyer, for instance, or any legally responsible party, we'd be glad to go ahead with the work. Otherwise, I am afraid... But I know she's in danger, he broke out. I know that, and I can't be advertising her plight, airing her affairs to everyone. I'm sorry, but I can't touch it unless you can give me some such endorsement, I stood up. But you can find plenty of detective agencies that aren't so particular. His mouth worked like a small boy's, and he caught his lower lip between his teeth. For a moment I thought he was going to burst into tears. But instead, he said slowly, I dare say you are right. Suppose I refer you to my brother-in-law, Roy Axford. Will his word be sufficient? Yes. Roy Axford, R.F. Axford, was a mining man who had a finger in at least half of the big business enterprises of the Pacific Coast, and his word on anything was commonly considered good enough for anybody. If you can get in touch with him now, I said, and arrange for me to see him today, I can get started without much delay. Pangburn crossed the room and dug a telephone out from among a heap of his ornaments. Within a minute or two, he was talking to someone who he called Rita. Is Roy home? Will he be home this afternoon? No, you can give him a message for me, though. Tell him I'm sending a gentleman up to see him this afternoon on a personal matter, personal with me and that I'll be very grateful if he'll do what I want. Yes. You'll find out, Rita. It isn't a thing to talk about over the phone. Yes, thanks. He pushed the telephone back into its hiding place and turned to me. He'll be at home until two o'clock. Tell him what I told you, and if he seems doubtful, have him call me up. You'll have to tell him the whole thing. He doesn't know anything at all about Miss Delano. All right. Before I go, I want a description of her. She's beautiful, he exclaimed, the most beautiful woman in the world. 
That would look nice on a reward circular. That isn't exactly what I want, I told him. How old is she? Twenty-two. Height? About five feet eight inches, or possibly nine. Slender, medium, or plump? She's inclined towards slenderness, but she... There was a note of enthusiasm in his voice that made me fear he was about to make a speech, so I cut him off with another question. What color hair? Brown. So dark it's almost black, and it's soft and thick and... Yes, yes, long or bobbed. Long and thick, and what color eyes? You've seen shadows on polished silver when... I wrote down gray eyes and hurried on with the interrogation. Complexion? Perfect. Uh-huh. But is it light or dark or florid or sallow or what? Fair. Face oval or square or long and thin or what shape? Oval. What shape nose? Large, small, turned up? Small and regular. There was a touch of indignation in his voice. How did she dress? Fashionably? And did she favor bright or quiet colors? Beaut! And then as I opened my mouth to head him off, he came down to earth with, Very quietly, usually dark blues and browns. What jewelry did she wear? I've never seen her wear any. Any scars or moles? The horrified look on his white face urged me on to give him a full shot. Or warts or deformities that you know. He was speechless, but he managed to shake his head. Have you a photograph of her? Yes, I'll show you. He bounded to his feet, wound his way through the room's excessive furnishings, and out through a curtained doorway. Immediately he was back with a large photograph in a carved ivory frame. It was one of those artistic photographs, a thing of shadows and hazy outlines, not much good for identification purposes. She was beautiful, right enough, but that meant nothing. That's the purpose of an artistic photograph. This the only one you have? Yes. I'll have to borrow it, but I'll get it back to you as soon as I have my copies made. No, no, he protested against having his lady love's face given to a lot of gumshoes. That would be terrible. I finally got it, but it cost me more words than I like to waste on an incidental. I want to borrow a couple of her letters or something in her writing, too, I said. For what? To have photostatic copies made. Handwriting specimens come in handy. Give you something to go over hotel registers with. Then, even if going under fictitious names, people now and then write notes and make memorandums. We had another battle, out of which I came with three envelopes and two meaningless sheets of paper, all bearing the girl's angular writing. She have much money? I asked, when the disputed photograph and handwriting specimens were safely tucked away in my pocket. I don't know. It's not the sort of thing that one would pry into. She wasn't poor, that is, she didn't have to practice any petty economies, but I have the faintest idea as to the amount of her income or its source. She had an account at the Golden Gate Trust Company, but naturally I don't know anything about its size. Many friends here? That's another thing I don't know. I think she knew a few people here, but I don't know who they were. You see, when we were together, we never talked about anything but ourselves. You know what I mean. There was nothing we were interested in but each other. We were simply 
Can't you even make a guess at where she came from or who she was? No, those things don't matter to me. She was Jeanie Delano, and that was enough for me. Did you and she ever have any financial interests in common? I mean, was there ever any transaction in money or other valuables in which both of you were interested? What I meant, of course, was had she got into him for a loan, or had she sold him something, or got money out of him in any other way? He jumped to his feet, and his face went fog gray. Then he sat down again, slumped down, and blushed scarlet. Pardon me, he said thickly. You don't know her, and of course you must look at the thing from all angles. No, there was nothing like that. I'm afraid you're going to waste time if you're going to work on the theory that she was an adventuress. There was nothing like that. She was a girl with something terrible hanging over her, something that called her to Baltimore suddenly, something that has taken her away from me. Money? What could money have to do with it? I love her. 3. R. F. Axford received me in an office-like room in his Russian Hill residence. A big blond man, whose forty-eight or nine years had not blurred the outlines of an athlete's body. A big, full-blooded man with the manner of one whose self-confidence is complete and not altogether unjustified. "'What's I Burke been up to now?' he asked amusedly when I told him who I was. His voice was a pleasant, vibrant bass. I didn't give him all the details. He was engaged to marry a genie Delano, who went east about three weeks ago, and then suddenly disappeared. He knows very little about her, thinks something has happened to her, and wants her found. Again? His shrewd blue eyes twinkled. And to a genie this time. She's the fifth within a year, to my knowledge, and no doubt I missed one or two who were current while I was in Hawaii. But where do I come in? I asked him for a responsible endorsement. I think he's all right, but he isn't, in the strictest sense, a responsible person. He referred me to you. You're right about us not being, in the strictest sense, a responsible person. The big man screwed up his eyes and mouth and thought for a moment. Then, do you think that something has really happened to the girl? Or is Burke imagining things? I don't know. I thought it was a dream at first, but in a couple of her letters there are hints that something was wrong. You might go ahead and find her, then, Axford said. I don't suppose any harm will come from letting him have his genie back. It will at least give him something to think about for a while. I have your word for it, then, Mr. Axford, that there will be no scandal or anything of the sort connected with the affair? Assuredly. Burke is all right, you know. It's simply that he is spoiled. He has been in rather delicate health all his life, and then he has an income that suffices to keep him modestly, with a little over to bring out books of verse and buy doodahs for his rooms. He takes himself a little too solemnly. It's too much the poet. But he's sound at bottom. I'll go ahead with it, then, I said, getting up. By the way, the girl has an account at the Golden Gate Trust Company, and I'd like to find out as much about it as possible, especially where her money came from. Clement, the cashier, is a model of caution when it comes to giving out information about depositors. 
If you could put in a word for me, it would make my way smoother. Be glad to. He wrote a couple of lines across the back of a card and gave it to me, and promising to call on him if I needed further assistance, I left. 4. I telephoned Pangburn that his brother-in-law had given the job his approval. I sent a wire to the agency's Baltimore branch, giving what information I had. Then I went up to Ashbury Avenue to the apartment house in which the girl had lived. The manager, an immense Mrs. Clute in rustling black, knew little, if any, more about the girl than Pangburn. The girl had lived there for two and a half months. She had occasional callers, but Pangburn was the only one that the manager could describe to me. The girl had given up the apartment on the third of the month, saying that she had been called east, and she had asked the manager to hold her mail until she sent her new address. Ten days later, Mrs. Clute had received a card from the girl, instructing her to forward her mail to 215 North Stricker Street, Baltimore, Maryland. There had been no mail to forward. The single thing of importance that I learned at the apartment house was that the girl's two trunks had been taken away by a green transfer truck. Green was the color used by one of the city's largest transfer companies. I went then to the office of this transfer company and found a friendly clerk on duty. A detective, if he is wise, takes pains to make and keep as many friends as possible among transfer company, express company, and railroad employees. I left the office with a memorandum of the transfer company's check numbers and the ferry baggage room to which the two trunks had been taken. At the ferry building, with this information, it didn't take me many minutes to learn that the trunks had been checked to Baltimore. I sent another wire to the Baltimore branch, giving the railroad check numbers. Sunday was well into night by this time, so I knocked off and went home. 5. Half an hour before the Golden Gate Trust Company opened for business the next morning, I was inside, talking to Clement, the cashier. All the traditional caution and conservatism of bankers rolled together wouldn't be one, two, three to the amount usually displayed by this plump, white-haired old man. But one look at Axford's card with Please give the bearer all possible assistance, inked across the back of it, made Clement even eager to help me. You have or have had an account here in the name of Jeanie Delano, I said. I'd like to know as much as possible about it, to whom she draws checks and to what amounts, but especially all you can tell me about where her money came from. He stabbed one of the pearl buttons on his desk with a pink finger, and a lad with polished yellow hair oozed silently into the room. The cashier scribbled with a pencil on a piece of paper and gave it to the noiseless youth, who disappeared. Presently he was back, laying a handful of papers on the cashier's desk. Clement looked through the papers and then up at me. Miss Delano was introduced here by Mr. Burke Pangburn on the 6th of last month and opened an account with $850 in cash. She made the following deposits after that, $400 on the 10th, $250 on the 21st, $300 on the 26th, $200 on the 30th, and $20,000 on the second of this month. All of these deposits, except the last, were made with cash. The last one was a check, which I have here. He handed it to me, a Golden Gate Trust Company check. 
Pay to the order of Jeannie Delanow, $20,000. Signed, Burke Pangburn. It was dated the second of the month. Burke Pangburn? I exclaimed a little stupidly. Was it usual for him to draw checks to that amount? I think not, but we shall see. He stabbed the pearl button again, ran his pencil across another slip of paper, and the youth with the polished yellow hair made a noiseless entrance, exit, entrance, and exit. The cashier looked through the fresh batch of papers that had been brought to him. On the first of the month, Mr. Pangburn deposited $20,000, a check against Mr. Axford's account here. Now how about Miss Delano's withdrawals, I asked. He picked up the papers that had to do with her account again. Her statement and canceled checks for last month haven't been delivered to her yet. Everything is here. A check for $85 to the order of H.K. Clute on the 15th of last month, one to cash for $300 on the 20th, and another of the same kind for $100 on the 25th. Both of these checks were apparently cashed here by her. On the third of this month, she closed out her account with a check to her own order for $21,515. And that check was cashed here by her. I lighted a cigarette and let these figures drift around in my head. None of them, except those that were fixed to Pangburn's and Axford's signatures, seemed to be of any value to me. The Clute check, the only one the girl had drawn in anyone else's favor, had almost certainly been for rent. This is the way of it, I summed up aloud. On the first of the month, Pangburn deposited Axford's check for $20,000. The next day, he gave a check to that amount to Miss Delano, which she deposited. On the following day, she closed her account, taking between twenty-one dollars and $22,000 in currency. Exactly, the cashier said. 6. Before going up to the Glinton apartments to find out why Pangburn hadn't come clean with me about the $20,000, I dropped in at the agency to see if any word had come from Baltimore. One of the clerks had just finished decoding a telegram. It read, Baggage arrived, Mount Royal Station on 8th. Taken away, same day. Unable to trace. 215 North Stricker Street is Baltimore Orphan Asylum. Girl not known there. Continuing our efforts to find her. The old man came in from luncheon as I was leaving. I went back into his office with him for a couple of minutes. Did you see Pangburn? he asked. Yes, I'm working on his job now, but I think it's a bust. What is it? Pangburn is R.F. Axford's brother-in-law. He met a girl a couple of months ago and fell for her. She sizes up as a worker. He doesn't know anything about her. The first of the month he got $20,000 from his brother-in-law and passed it over to the girl. She blew, telling him that she had been called to Baltimore and giving him a phony address that turns out to be an orphan asylum. She sends her trunks to Baltimore and sent him some letters from there, but a friend could have taken care of the baggage and could have remailed the letters for her. Of course, she would have needed a ticket to check the trunks on, 
but in a $20,000 game, that would be a small expense. Pangburn held out on me. He didn't tell me a word about the money. Ashamed of being easy pickings, I reckon. I'm going to the bat with him on it now. The old man smiled his mild smile that might mean anything, and I left. 7. Ten minutes of ringing Pangburn's bell brought no answer. The elevator boy told me he thought Pangburn hadn't been in all night. I put a note in his box and went down to the railroad company's offices, where I arranged to be notified if an unused Baltimore-San Francisco ticket was turned in for redemption. That done, I went up to the Chronicle office and searched the files for weather conditions during the past month, making a memorandum of four days upon which it had rained steadily day and night. I carried my memorandum to the offices of the three largest taxicab companies. This was a trick that had worked well for me before. The girl's apartment was some distance from the streetcar line, and I was counting upon her having gone out or having had a caller on one of those rainy dates. In either case, it was very likely that she or her caller had left in a taxi in preference to walking through the rain to the car line. The taxicab company's daily records would show any calls from her address and the fare's destinations. The ideal trick, of course, would have been to have had the records searched for the full extent of the girl's occupancy of the apartment, but no taxicab company would stand for having that amount of work thrust upon them unless it was a matter of life and death. It was difficult enough for me to persuade them to turn clerks loose on the four days I had selected. I called up Pangburn again after I left the last taxicab office, but he was not at home. I called up Axford's residence, thinking that the poet might have spent the night there, but was told that he had not. Late that afternoon I got my copies of the girl's photograph and handwriting, and put one of each in the mail for Baltimore. Then I went around to the three taxicab companies' offices and got my reports. Two of them had nothing for me. The third's records showed two calls from the girl's apartment. On one rainy afternoon, a taxi had been called, and one passenger had been taken to the Glenton Apartments. The passenger, obviously, was either the girl or Pangburn. At half-past twelve one night, another call had come in, and this passenger had been taken to the Marquis Hotel. The driver who had answered this second call remembered it indistinctly when I questioned him, but he thought that his fare had been a man. I let the matter rest there for the time. The Marquis isn't a large hotel, as San Francisco hotels go, but it is too large to make canvassing its guest for the one I wanted practicable. I spent the evening trying to reach Pangburn with no success. At eleven o'clock I called up Axford and asked him if he had any idea where I might find his brother-in-law. "'I haven't seen him for several days,' the millionaire said. "'He was supposed to come for dinner last night, but didn't. "'My wife tried to reach him by phone a couple of times today, but couldn't.'" 8. The next morning I called Pangburn's apartment before I got out of bed. Got no answer. Then I telephoned Axford and made an appointment for ten o'clock at his office. I don't know what he's up to now, Axford said good-naturedly when I told him that Pangbert had apparently been away from his apartment since Sunday. And I suppose there's small chance of guessing. Our Burke is nothing if not erratic. How are you progressing with your search for the damsel in distress? Far enough to convince me she isn't in a whole lot of distress. She got $20,000 from your brother-in-law the day before she vanished. 
Twenty thousand dollars from Burke? She must be a wonderful girl. But wherever did he get that much money? From you. Axford's muscular body straightened in his chair. From me? Yes. Your check. He did not. There was nothing argumentative in his voice. It simply stated a fact. You didn't give him a check for $20,000 on the first of the month? No. Then, I suggested, perhaps we'd better take a run over to the Golden Gate Trust Company. Ten minutes later, we were in Clement's office. I'd like to see my canceled checks, Axford told the cashier. The youth with the polished yellow hair brought them in presently, a thick wad of them and Axford ran rapidly through them until he found the one he wanted. He studied that one for a long while, and when he looked up at me, he shook his head slowly but with finality. I've never seen it before. Clement mopped his head with a white handkerchief and tried to pretend that he wasn't burning up with curiosity and fears that his bank had been gypped. The millionaire turned the check over and looked at the endorsement. Deposited by Burke? he said in the voice of one who talks while he thinks of something entirely different. On the first. Could we talk to the teller who took in the $20,000 check that Miss Delano deposited? I asked Clement. He pressed one of his desk's pearl buttons with a fumbling pink finger, and in a minute or two a little sallow man with a hairless head came in. Do you remember taking a check for 20000 from Miss Jeanie Delano a few weeks ago? I asked him. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Perfectly. Just what do you remember about it? Well, sir, Miss Delano came to my window with Mr. Burke Pangburn. It was his check. I thought it was a large check for him to be drawing, but the bookkeeper said he had enough money in his account to cover it. They stood there, Miss Delano and Mr. Pangburn, talking and laughing while I entered the deposit in her book, and then they left. And that was all. This check... Axford said slowly after the teller had gone back to his cage, "'Is a forgery. But I shall make it good, of course. That ends the matter, Mr. Clement, and there must be no more to do about it.' "'Certainly, Mr. Axford, certainly.' Clement was all enormously relieved smiles and head-noddings with this $20,000 load lifted from his bank's shoulders. Axford and I left the bank then and got into his coupe, in which we had come from his office— but he did not immediately start the engine. He sat for a while, staring at the traffic of Montgomery Street with unseeing eyes. "'I want you to find Burke,' he said presently, and there was no emotion of any sort in his bass voice. "'I want you to find him without risking the least whisper of scandal. If my wife knew of all this, she mustn't know. She thinks her brother is a choice morsel.' I want you to find him for me. The girl doesn't matter any more, but I suppose that where you find one, you'll find the other. I'm not interested in the money, and I don't want you to make any special attempt to recover that. It could hardly be done, I'm afraid, without publicity. I want you to find Burke before he does something else. If you want to avoid the wrong kind of publicity, I said, your best bet is to spread the right kind first. Let's advertise him as missing. Fill the papers up with his pictures and so forth. That'll play him up strong. 
He's your brother-in-law, and he's a poet. We can say that he's been ill. You told me that he had been in delicate health all his life, and that we fear he has dropped dead somewhere or is suffering under some mental derangement. There will be no necessity of mentioning the girl or the money, and our explanation may keep people, especially your wife, from guessing the truth when the fact he is missing leaks out. It's bound to leak out somehow. He didn't like my idea at first, but I finally won him over. We went up to Pangburn's apartment then, easily securing admittance on Axford's explanation that we had an engagement with him and would wait there for him. I went through the rooms inch by inch, prying into each hole and hollow and crack, reading everything that was written anywhere, even down to his manuscripts, and I found nothing that threw any light on his disappearance. I helped myself to his photographs, pocketing five of the dozen or more that were there. Axford did not think that any of the poet's bags or trunks were missing from the pack room. I did not find his Golden Gate Trust Company deposit book. I spent the rest of the day loading the newspapers up with what we wished them to have, and they gave my ex-client one grand spread, first-page stuff with photographs and all possible trimmings. Anyone in San Francisco who didn't know that Burke Pangburn, brother-in-law of R. F. Axford and author of Sand Patches and Other Verse, was missing, either couldn't read or wouldn't. 9. The advertising brought results. By the following morning, reports were rolling in from all directions with dozens of people who had seen the missing poet in dozens of places. A few of these reports looked promising, or at least possible, but the majority were ridiculous on their faces. I came back to the agency from running out one that had until run out looked good to find a note on my desk asking me to call up Axford. Can you come down to my office now? He asked when I got him on the wire. There was a lad of twenty-one or two with Axford when I was ushered into his office, a narrow-chested, dandified lad of the sporting clerk type. This is Mr. Fall, one of my employees, Axford told me. He says he saw Burke Sunday night. Where? I asked Fall. Going into a roadhouse near Half Moon Bay. Sure it was him? Absolutely. I've seen him come in here to Mr. Axford's office to know him. It was him, all right. How'd you come to see him? I was coming in from further down the shore with some friends, and we stopped at the roadhouse to get something to eat. As we were leaving... A car drove up, and Mr. Pangburn and a girl or woman, I didn't notice her particularly, got out and went inside. I didn't think anything of it until I saw in the paper last night that he hadn't been seen since Sunday. So then I thought to myself that... What roadhouse was this? I cut in, not being interested in his mental processes. The White Shack. About what time? Somewhere between 11.30 and midnight, I guess. He see you? No, I was already in our car when he drove up. I don't think he'd know me anyway. What did the woman look like? I don't know. I didn't see her face, and I can't remember how she was dressed or even if she was short or tall. That was all Fall could tell me. We shooed him out of the office, and I used Axford's telephone to call up Wap Healy's dive in North Beach and leave word that when Porky Grout came in, he was to call up Jack. That was a standing arrangement by which I got word to Porky whenever I wanted to see him without giving anybody a chance to tumble to the connection between us. 
Know the white shack? I asked Axford when I was through phoning. I know where it is, but I don't know anything about it. Well, it's a tough hole, run by tin-star Joplin, an ex-yeg who invested his winnings in the place when Prohibition made the roadhouse game good. He makes more money now than he ever heard in his piking safe-ripping days. Retailing liquor is a sideline with him. His real profit comes from acting as a relay station for the booze that comes through Half Moon Bay for points beyond. And the dope is that half the booze put ashore by the Pacific Rum Fleet is put ashore in Half Moon Bay. The White Shack is a tough hole, and it's no place for your brother-in-law to be hanging around. I can't go down there myself without stirring things up. Joplin and I are old friends. But I've got a man I can put in there for a few nights. Pangburn may be a regular visitor, or he may even be staying there. He wouldn't be the first one Joplin had ever let hide out there. I'll put this man of mine in the place for a week, anyway, and see what he can find. It's all in your hands, Axford said. Find Burke without scandal. That's all I ask. 10. From Axford's office, I went straight to my rooms, left the outer door unlocked, and sat down to wait for Porky Grout. I had waited an hour and a half when he pushed the door open and came in. Lo, how's tricks? He swaggered to a chair, leaned back in it, put his feet on the table, and reached for a pack of cigarettes that lay there. That was Porky Grout, a pasty-faced man in his thirties, neither large nor small, always dressed flashily, even if sometimes dirtily, and trying to hide an enormous cowardice beyond a swaggering carriage, a blustering habit of speech, and an exaggerated pretense of self-assurance. But I had known him for three years— so now I crossed the room and pushed his feet roughly off the table, almost sending him over backward. "'What's the idea?' he came to his feet, crouching and snarling. "'Where do you get that stuff? Do you want to smack in a—' I took a step toward him. He sprang away across the room. Oh, "'I didn't mean nothing. I was only kidding.' "'Shut up and sit down,' I advised him. I had known this porky grout for three years— and had been using him for nearly that long, and I didn't know a single thing that could be said in his favor. He was a coward, he was a liar, he was a thief and a hophead. He was a traitor to his kind, and if not watched, to his employers. A nice bird to deal with. But detecting is a hard business, and you use whatever tools come to hand. This porky was an effective tool if handled right, which meant keeping your hand on his throat all the time and checking up every piece of information he brought in. His cowardice was, for my purpose, his greatest asset. It was notorious throughout the criminal coast. And though nobody, crook or not, could possibly think him a man to be trusted, nevertheless he was not actually distrusted. Many of his fellows thought him too much the coward to be dangerous. They thought he would be afraid to betray them, afraid of the summary vengeance that crookdom visits upon the squealer. But they didn't take into account Porky's gift for convincing himself that he was a lion-hearted fellow when no danger was near. So he went freely where he desired and where I sent him, and brought me otherwise unobtainable bits of information upon matters in which I was interested. For nearly three years I had used him with considerable success, paying him well, and keeping him under my heel. Informant was the polite word that designated him in my reports. The underworld has even less lovely names than the common stool pigeon to denote his kind. I have a job for you, I told him, now that he was seated again with his feet on the floor. 
His loose mouth twitched up at the left corner, pushing that eye into a knowing squint. I thought so. He always says something like that. I want you to go down to Half Moon Bay and stick around Tin Star Joplin's joint for a few nights. Here are two photos, sliding one of Pangburn and one of the girl across the table. Their names and descriptions are written on the backs. I want to know if either of them shows up down there, what they're doing, and where they're hanging out. It may be that Tin Star is covering them up. Porky was looking knowingly from one picture to the other. I think I know this guy, he said out of the corner of his mouth that twitches. That's another thing about Porky. You can't mention a name or give a description that won't bring that same remark, even though you make them up. Here's some money. I slid some bills across the table. If you're down there more than a couple of nights, I'll get some more to you. Keep in touch with me, either over this phone or the undercover one at the office. And remember this, lay off the stuff. If I come down there and find you all snowed up, I promise that I'll tip Joplin off to you. He had finished counting the money by now, there wasn't a whole lot to count, and he threw it contemptuously back on the table. Save that for newspapers, he sneered. How am I going to get anywhere if I can't spend no money in the joint? That's plenty for a couple of days' expenses. You'll probably knock back half of it. If you stay longer than a couple of days, I'll get more to you. And you get your pay when the job is done, and not before. He shook his head and got up. I'm tired of piking along with you. You can turn your own jobs. I'm through. If you don't get down to Half Moon Bay tonight, you are through, I assured him letting him get out of the threat whatever he liked. After a little while, of course, he took the money and left. The dispute over expense money was simply a preliminary that went with every job I sent about on. End of The Girl with the Silver Eyes, Part 1